This is the Annex, a sociology podcast. I'm Joseph Cohn from the City University of New York. And I'm Gabriel Rossman from UCLA. Our guest today is Philip Cohen from the University of Maryland. Philip is the author of Enduring Bonds, director of Social Archive, one of the discipline's premier bloggers, and uh, a member of the ASA Committee on Publications. Today, we're going to talk about the ASA's reaction to Trump's uh, proposed public release regulations on publicly funded research. Our discussion was recorded on January 14th, 2020. All right. So, first of all, thank you for joining us, Philip. Thank you. Great. Glad to be here. And Happy New Year, Gabriel. Uh, thanks. You guys, too. So we are here to talk about the ASA's reaction to uh, President Trump's proposed regulation. Let me let me ask you guys, does anybody want to tell this story to get it right? Uh, yeah, I'll be happy to. Um, I want to stop. I will slow you down a little because you, you said Trump's regulation. And the problem with that is that's like pouring acid on a sociologist's face. So <laughs> yeah. not, to, not to minimize acid. I was looking going. forward to hearing Philip Cohen, of all people, saying he uh, approved <laughs> of this Trump administration. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. So the story is basically yeah. like there's uh, there's a thing in, in the White House called the Office of Science and Technology Policy, OSTP. They apparently had a proposed policy, which when word of it leaked out, um, got, uh, caused this reaction that we're now talking about. Um, so they're technically part of the Trump administration, but I think when word of it leaked out is actually when the Trump part of the Trump administration actually found out about it and might've been enough to, to actually kill it. You know, we, right. we don't know. But it goes back to, um, 2012 or so, um, the OSTP had a policy that said federally funded research, when you publish it, um, it has to be made publicly available, but they left the publishers a 12-month embargo period. So Elsevier or Sage, in the case of sociology, can sell that article for 12 months, after which point it must be made open access or free to read for the public. And the the proposed change now was to eliminate that 12-month embargo and just say, from now on, as soon as you publish federally funded research, it has to be freely available. So essentially threatening the revenue of journals to sell that article from day one. And that's what um, uh, all the big publishers, all the big paywall publishers, the publishers that sell subscriptions, um, were upset about this, including um, Elsevier and the... Um, and the and the big publishers you think of like science and nature, but also the the humanities and social science publishers like ASA and all the small bore publishers like us. Now, your your distinction of uh, the administration versus the office within it. Now, I don't think anybody thinks that like this is something he saw it on Tucker Carlson and then you know and then, uh, and then he told uh, Jared to get on this. You know, I, to work I, it out. Yeah, yeah, uh, but. Uh, but the fact, it, it's just kind of an interesting meta point that there's a certain aspect of life goes on with policy and, right. you know, that um, there's certain aspects of policy that are just kind of percolating through the policy ecosystem and, uh, you know, more or less civil service people think they're a good idea in this case, uh, probably correctly, you know, and more or less regardless of administration, these ideas are going to come out. Um, and, you know, it's, it's very possible to see this as, I think probably the correct way to see this. I'm not saying this to deny the administration credit for something good. Uh, I'm just, it's just, you know, I'd say the same thing if it was the Obama administration doing this. Uh, right. You know, there's just a good idea that's percolating through DC 
uh, and sometimes bad ideas percolate through DC. And it's just kind of like the time has come for the idea. Uh, and it just happens to be during the uh, Trump administration. Right. So if you look at the, I, no, I agree with that. And if you look at like who is running the Office of Science and Technology Policy, um, it is, a, I forget the person's name, but it's a person who uh, who worked under Bush and Obama and sort of been working under this, you know, working in this office for a long time and, and, um, uh, and has had this sort of, you know, open access type orientation in that position for a while. Um, there is a, to make it a little bit more complicated, and this is just a, should file this under tangent, I think. Um, there is a, a much more um, uh, nefarious type uh, open science thing that is going around Washington also, which has to do with climate science. Um, and there are um, there are um, uh, climate denial, you know, oil industry type interests who um, who have been pushing this open science thing because they 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 have a proposed. I don't know the status of it. It's a rule, a proposed rule a bill or something, you know, obviously not a Washington person, um, to to say that the federal government can't base policy on science, which is not based on open data. And they're doing that as a poison pill thing or something to kill um, stuff like NASA science, which is classified um, and things like that. So there's, there, they, there is a totally separate from this policy. There's a, there's a, there's a rule about um, basing policy on uh, science, which is not, uh, doesn't use open data. That's, I, and, I think and, that is no connection to this. And, and I could see how that would be uh, an appealing thing if you're um, resisting climate policy, because about 10, 12 years ago, there was that leak probably from the FSB. Exactly. Of, uh, all the climate science stuff showing how, uh, you know, they engaged in a certain amount of p-hacking cynicism, uh, you know, saying, you know, this scientific enemy has a paper out, I'm going to kill it in peer review. You know, the kind of thing that right. Right. Uh, basically all scientists do, but does not sound good, you know. It's if um, WikiLeaks got all of our email and wanted to make our discipline look bad, they could pull it off probably. Yeah, and, and, and there's been other cases of this. I don't want to distract the conversation too much, but, uh, no. you know, it's something that uh, Philip probably knows closer than the rest of us because he's a family demographer, is you also saw this kind of issue of, well, show us what, what have you got to hide? Uh, you know, show us your internal documents, show us your data uh, with people who weren't happy with Regnerus's publication. And right. there was a certain amount. And so uh, Regnerus got this from the left and then various climate scientists have gotten this from the right of uh, scholars being harassed through FOIA requests and that sort of thing. Right. No, and in that case, um, be both because Regnerus, who worked at the University of Texas and um, the publisher who publishes, the editor who is Jim Wright, who was working for an Elsevier journal, but working was also a state employee in Florida. Uh -huh. His emails also got FOIA'd. Um, and um, uh, I think I, I said in my um, book where I discussed this, you know, you could hear the sound of Gmail accounts opening up all over academia from, um, yeah. <laughs> from people who didn't want their stuff to get dumped. We actually at Maryland, we've recently been told that we're not allowed to use Gmail for um, for uh, work-related correspondence anymore because of this exact, uh, this, this issue of not being able to, um, well, either because of sharing student information or because of um, it not being able to be recovered later. Uh, anyway. oh, so, so they're gonna put you on some uh, incomprehensible, useless and slow FERPA compliant email system? <laughs> well, <laughs> ironically, the, the email vendor they have is uh, Google. So, uh -huh. <laughs> yeah. so we're not allowed to use our Gmail accounts, but our UMD accounts are now actually run by Google. I see. So, so, so go figure. At least they work well, probably. 
Yeah. Uh, yeah, it works okay. Anyway, so but so ASA comes out with this. ASA is one of a bunch of there. It was confusing because there were two letters against this policy. One was like a very militant nationalistic letter that said this policy will threaten America's interests around the world and our ability to export knowledge and dominate the information market. And that was the Elsevier Chamber of Commerce letter. And then ASA was in a Wait, softer... Wait, isn't, isn't Elsevier Dutch? Uh, yes. <laughs> but, Why? But, well, I mean, it's like this, you know, vital natural resources that, you know, when we go to war with Holland... We're going to control yeah. over paywall. <laughs> <laughs> yes, but they're very concerned about the American national interest, okay? Yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, wait, I have, yeah. The, I have the quote actually here. So the ASA came out with a letter that was co-signed by a bunch of disciplinary associations. Right. And it said that the association believes that this proposal could, quote, significantly threaten a vibrant American scientific enterprise. And it explained, it said, quote, the 12, uh, the current 12 month embargo provides publishers with the financial stability that enables us to support peer review that ensures the quality and integrity of the research enterprise. And they went on to say, quote, to take action to shorten the 12 month embargo would undermine cooperative efforts to address uh, these bigger, higher priorities and risk the continued international leadership for the US of the scientific enterprise. That is very strong. It's like oh, the 12 yeah. month embargo is like the linchpin of American <laughs> technological progress. Like, uh, right. well, right. No, and their argument is that if they're not essentially, if they're not profitable, um, then the the it's it's a debate really over what is the um, what's the functional necessity of having these journals. And so their value proposition is they organize peer review. They curate research to identify what's important, and they publish and distribute that information. Um, and uh, without that sort of science can't function the way it's supposed to function. And it's a perfect argument because um, those of us on the open side of this argument are making exactly the opposite argument, which is, um, yeah, we need, to, we need to do peer review and we need to distribute information, but actually the paywall um, and all that it entails and the huge profits that they're siphoning off are um, uh, retarding the progress of science um, and um, not the part about nationalism and stuff, but but the for the for the for, for science to function the way you know we sort of ideally think it should, um, it needs to be open instead of instead of like this. So the, everything comes down. But the the it's exact same argument they made in 2012 when the one year embargo was put in place. They said that was going to be the end of the world, um, and now it's you know the policy is just moving along a little further, and the end of the world is coming again. So go figure. Well, wait, you left, off, you left off the most important thing that the uh, paywall journals do, which is that they give enough money to the disciplinary society so that they can they can uh, cater the opening plenary dinner, you know. Um, I You should also, you know, the Committee on Publications also has a reception at the ASA meeting, and it's yeah. pretty nice. Yeah, that's right. So it's like, uh, you know, the price of having a dinner, you know, it's like, We'd have to we push people to Thai Hub so that we can have a dinner, you know. Yeah. Wait, I want to get yeah. I want to I want right. to compartmentalize this first because like before I want to talk about the ASA's official position and then talk about like the rationale behind the decision itself. I just want to say first, I reached out to the ASA. I invited somebody I, to the ASA communications office. I invited somebody to come on and I told them that I would uh, read a statement. I haven't gotten a response. If I do get something from them between now and when the thing is released in like a month from now, I'll read it. 
so listen at the end, uh, you know, to well, wait see a minute. if there was there, there's something, something yeah. absurd about that. And, and that disclaimer you just read as if like, basically like journalist style, we reached out to the opposition. It's very telling because we have a member of the publications committee on the podcast. <laughs> yes, and, but the deal and, is- and, 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 Wait, 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 wait. Implicitly, what you were conceding in that, in saying we reached out to the opposition is saying that the that we're not really a self-governing <laughs> academic body. So true. That in, in effect, the ASA is run by the staff and uh, and not in a meaningful sense by academics, you know, and that really Philip is not in charge of publications and his colleagues are not in charge of publications, but the staff is in charge. We'll know. get... We'll get to that one that's totally my assumption. Yeah. That's 100% my assumption. And I just wanted to at least hear from the people who were involved in making that decision. Like, can somebody please, can one of you explain to me, how does the 12 month embargo by their logic, uh, why is it a linchpin to the advancement of science? Like what exactly are they doing? Not in broad terms, oh, like we, we know that there we're they're arguing it the same way that you would be arguing that the mortgage interest deduction, or or actually to make it more personal, oh, that hurts. the parsonage the parsonage deduction is an important aspect of you know <laughs> uh, of, uh, you know American policy and promoting civil society because it personally benefits you, you know. Like if, if your property taxes or whatever went way up, like you'd be talking about how uh, it's going to be the you know the end of social yeah. capital. <laughs> and so are we agreed? Can anybody mount an argument? That's what I'm well, getting. So at. what they're doing. So even if you take out the for-profit publishers, which in the case of ASA is Sage, what they're essentially doing with the paywall is they're they are they're paying for the operations of the publications. So they're saying we have to do that. But they're also making an argument that they the extra money they get, that is the money they get beyond what they need to operate the journals, is essential for the society to operate, and that is essential for it to pay its play its function in in, in the world. So and invariably we get down to the minority fellows program um, and other things that are very popular among sociologists, American members of the ASA, like um, uh, support for the the syllabus collection and the other the the you know. I, Whatever else ASA does, actually, I'm a little unclear. Um, but 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 if you have something that you think ASA does that you like that you don't have to pay extra for, like the job bank or other the other stuff you do have to the conference that you do have to pay extra for, definitely the minority fellows program is one of them. And it's you know the fund for the advancement of the discipline. Um, if you want them to do their public relations work on behalf of the discipline, if you want them to lobby against open access. Well, the public relations right. work is is like so ironic, right? I mean, that, that's the irony. We we need to hide the research so that we can pay a publicist to tell people to check out the research, <laughs> which they can't read because it's behind a paywall. Yes. Well, the truth is, one of the big expenses of the paywall is the paywall. I mean, one of the one of the it, it costs a lot of money to deny access to all this information to all these millions of people who want it. Um, and you have to, you know, the whole yeah. authentication system and the, the you know, the identities and the, the security and all that stuff. The billing department, right. the negotiation team. Exactly. The hit that. squad for people who put PDFs on their website. The, 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 uh, the tech support because, wait, I'm already on VPN. How come it's saying I need to pay $50 for a one-day pass, you know? Yeah. Right. So, so it's basically the existence of the society is what they what they offer as their argument, and it's you know, um, uh, 
you know, if there are, I don't want to say there's no functions to having journals. Um, what we just have is a problem with our right. system of paying for them. And um, uh, uh, there, I do also, I also want to clarify one thing that led that quote that you read, um, Joe was from the, not from the letter that ASA signed. That was from the letter that the other group signed against the same policy. ASA's um, letter was um, uh, uh, very similar, um, but it said um, to shorten the 12 month embargo would undermine cooperative efforts to address uh, these bigger, higher priorities and risk the continued international leadership of the US scientific enterprise. Oh, that is the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, that's pretty much the same idea. It's definitely a stark warning of right. like and, and, <laughs> right on the governance issue. By the way, um, so when I when I um, uh, so so uh, I guess I should say I don't know when this when this whenever this gets released. Um, I, I so I I wrote a resolution objecting to this and I put it on the agenda for the committee on publications, which is meeting in late January. Um, and I got, you know, I circulated a thing online. So about 200 and some sociologists have signed this on this letter. And one of the things I asked when I when I did this was, um, who made this decision to sign this letter? Um, and the answer is they have sort of a Politburo uh, for emergency response on policy issues, which is the with the the presidential troika, which is the president elect, the current president, and the past president, and the treasurer, the secretary treasurer of ASA. So those four people. Um, either were consulted or were ostensibly consulted, or maybe it was all their idea. We haven't heard from them, but um, Nancy Kidd, the executive director, told us that um, they that they went they they went through the policy of getting this policy statement approved, which requires um, the elected sociology uh, academic sociologists to um, to sign off on it. Can I, I just want to clarify this for, for listeners, especially people who might not be as familiar with the organization. So right. there, the ASA has a committee on publications, which is sort of a civil governance body on all matters related to publication that involves the ASA. But when this announcement was made, the ASA decided that it was like an emergency policy situation. And so they have sort of a special team that can establish policy without conferring with this civil governance body. It's made up of some high ups and they decided to sign on with all the other academic community uh, committees in a form of emergency. Is this not something that they can, and just to, re just to reiterate, Philip is a member of the committee on publications. He was right. not consulted before. And after the emergency announcement was made was there any sort of after the fact consultation with you guys or was that just sort of etched in stone that is the essay's position done it was that um the um the the uh the, there was no notification to the asa members also in fact um a couple of days after asa signed this the asa footnotes went out with a section called something like advocating for you in the world or something and it listed the asa's <laughs> advocacy <laughs> There are things they've done for advocacy lately and didn't even mention this. Um, but I do want to say that the Committee on Publications doesn't, there's no rule. We're totally advisory, honestly. If you read the bylaws of okay. ASA, um, the Committee on Publications um, uh, is just there to give advice. So there's no rule that we have to be consulted. There's, we don't, we don't, uh, basically what the Committee on Publications does is we, the most important thing we do is we rec we um, choose editors or we recommend editors for the journals. Um, and then we do various other very minor stuff. Like if a journal wants um, a page allocation increase because the pages still matter for some reason, if they want a page allocation increase, we approve it, but it's just advisory. 
So, so my my I, I know way less about the kind of like upper echelon eyes wide shut levels of ASA than you do, <laughs> but um, my lips but are I, I'm 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 assuming that. Um, they, they didn't even see this as a publications issue. They just saw this as a public policy yes. issue. Like they saw this as something for their kind of lobbyist arm having to do with their relationships with other professional associations when they all come together to jointly lobby the state. Mm -hmm. And it didn't even occur to them that like we're, we're talking about making research inaccessible. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think the truth is a sort of the sort of the paper trail, the forensic, uh, Twitter sphere analysis of how this happened is that essentially a panic went through the publishing society community um, and they rushed these two. That's why there are these two versions of the letters that went out. And I think basically there was a fear that Trump might sign something um, before he understood mm -hmm. um, that the Chamber of Commerce and the publishers thought it was a bad thing for America. Um, and so now, uh, you know, it, 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 they may have actually succeeded in killing it. I don't, it never had an official status. It's not like there was officially a proposal on his desk waiting for his signature. But <laughs> you know what's funny is that the uh, if the ASA is against it, you could easily see Tucker Carlson being for it. Oh yeah, and that making him want to fight it. Oh know? yeah, no, I, I don't think I think I think Tucker Carlson probably would uh, would uh, would be for this policy. Yeah. It's I mean, well, I know people who know people, so maybe we can make it. <laughs> well, if you hate <laughs> academia, you would definitely want to punish them by um, by not letting them yeah. profit from selling their work. Um, but but the, yeah. an interesting division here, which I think we should pay more attention to, is the diff the division between the sort of three actors are the the societies, the publishers, and the libraries. And we have to pay more attention to the libraries. Yeah. Um. The libraries are yeah. the the you know the bodies that, that the, the good guys. Is that the word you're looking for? We well they're in the yes, but they're in the position <laughs> of spending. They're they're the ones who um who actually pay the paywall. Right. Um, and so yeah. um, as their budgets have increasingly been taken over by increasing subscription fees, um, they're in, they're in, they're um, they're increasingly playing the role of negotiators with the big publishers. And so, you know, it, it's sad that we have the societies against the libraries. Um, and it's because mm -hmm. essentially they're what should be a healthy, wonderful relationship between them, in my view, is like polluted by the by the profiteering publishers who have contaminated mm. what should have been a beautiful cooperative academic relationship. That's my view. <laughs> mm -hmm. I, 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 for me, I, I always wonder, my first reaction to this story was, okay, one, once again, like the professional association that presides over the discipline that really cares about inequality is fighting for like, you know, corporations to still be doing well. And it's very telling on some level, right? It's like all about equality until it gets down to brass tacks, like Gabriel starts saying, who to whose benefit is this whole thing? I mean, I would say you guys are at, a, you know, R1 institutions and probably more the type of people who would benefit from whatever benefits the top of the ASA, but for just regular people who, who aren't at schools with big library accounts or, you know, who do research and they, they don't have access to everything. Like, how does this help us? The And I, I assume most ASA members are of that type of group. They don't have access to all the journals and it is a problem. The embargo hurts them and their students. Like, I don't have access to all the journals. I mean, I'm at UCLA, and the University of California has been very aggressive about fighting uh, back against publishers. Yeah. And uh, so, like, I don't have El Sevier, which um, is not a big deal to me because I'm a sociologist, and the only sociology journal I can think of published by El Sevier is Poetic. Uh, social science um, research is also. 
Okay, so that's two that I've heard of. Um, yeah. But, yeah. you know, aside from that, but, you know, the life scientists at UCLA are really upset. Yeah. I went to a Senate faculty meeting and the life scientists were like, they sounded like uh, parents talking to the Colombian government saying, why won't you just pay the FARC? My kid, my children are kidnapped. Right. You know, right. just give in to them, right. you know, uh, whereas like it's very easy for me as a sociologist to say, yeah, who cares? Because right. I don't really need to read SSR poetics that often. Right. Um, social science and medicine also. There's a few <laughs> niches that, that were, but Elsevier is not the big, Sage is the big player in sociology right. um, for sure. Yeah. But it's like, who's this benefiting right. Right. in terms of sociologists? Like what? How many sociologists are in the universe of the ASA? Like 20,000 probably, something like that. In the ASA? Or like just in the universe of people who could oh, be oh, right, like right. Pro the world right. of professional sociologists. Right. Yep. My guess is like nineteen thousand of them would probably benefit. Of the twenty thousand, would benefit from opening journals. It would just mean more articles for them, and I don't right. really, I doubt that it would change the. Well, it, it may be. I mean, it probably in the case of ASA, um, you know, they already allow preprints, so you can already post a preprint of your paper before you publish it. Um, the so the embargo is only restricting access to the final edited version for that 12 month period. So the preprint version is already out there. And then after that 12 month period, and it's only for federally funded research. So in addition to the, um, it's not for all their journals, it's only for the stuff that's federally funded, which in, in sociology is not that much. It's more, you know, in demography or some other areas. Um, but Although what's funny about that is that means that it would add to the cost of the paywall itself because they'd either have to lower the paywall overall or they'd have to engage with the administrative effort to figure out, you know, which, you know, 10 to 50%, depending on subfield of the research was federally supported. Right. So what's happened in the case of, um, so, but they've done that already with the 12 month paywall. Um, so if you publish, uh, mm -hmm. you know, if you, if you do, uh, and if you, if you're working at a pop center, you have an NIH grant and you publish in demography, um, then um, they make your paper free after 12 months and they already have the infrastructure to do that. But yeah, sure, it's an administrative burden um, and it does increase mm -hmm. the cost. Yeah, it's not exactly a shoestring operation over at Elsevier though. Like how, what, what type of revenue are they doing? I'm sure they can easily find a few IT guys to work that problem out. Well, but but they'd have to pay them, right? Which I, I was just taking it back to Philip's original right. point that uh, the paywall itself is a dead weight oh, loss. Yeah. Right. Like, I don't think it's the entire cost. I think that, like, if you could wave a magic, I mean, Philip probably knows more about this than I do, but I'm, I just have to imagine that if you could wave a magic wand and eliminate all the transaction costs of the paywall, you know, you'd still have most of the uh, subscription fees that libraries have to pay because a lot of that goes to Elsevier profits. There's plenty of other administrative expenses. There's the kickbacks to the professional societies. Right. And all that's probably more than the costs of the paywall itself, depending on how you count it. So if, you know, if we, if you want to step back a little and say, like, who's the system benefiting, if we rebuilt it from scratch, um, there's sort of a, there's a design sitting there that, um, that would work very well. So, if, you know, in 30 seconds, this is how it would work if we could rebuild it from scratch. Um, we, instead of charging readers to read work or libraries to subscribe to it, we make publication part of the research expense. So, you know, we have this a little bit now with the APCs, uh, with the article page charges. Um, but, but, but if you back up from that, instead of charging on a per article basis or something, you say, okay, the university who's hiring these researchers or the government that's paying for the research, they need to find a way to pay for this, disseminating this research and it make it free to everybody. If we take out what the publishers are, the publisher profits, 
we could run the same system, but with researchers, with the same universities paying, basically, mostly, the same universities that are now subscribing, instead paying less than they're paying now to make the whole, the whole corpus of knowledge open. And there's a, there's a few a few people have tried to design this the annual reviews you know the annual review of sociology that company has a model where they go to the university libraries and they say if we get a certain number of you to agree to pay you know what you're paying now or a little bit less than what you're paying now we'll make this journal open for everybody so it's just a collective action. It's problem. like a Patreon. It's like a, what? It's like a Patreon. Exactly. Model. It's like a Patreon right. model. So it's people yeah. who are kind of paying already, and and you just get you know if you get five hundred of them of those libraries to agree, then you can run the journal as it's running now, but with no paywall. Yeah, or we can have all the public universities have presses. Right. That that deliver that scientific support services as part of their regular course of operations. That won't necessarily work because there's already university presses and they behave more or less like commercial publishers in the in the journal space. Right. Well, how did how did these how did these publishers? I, I'd be curious to see how these publishers behaved like 50, 60 years ago. Like, were they just absorbing sort of a basic function of knowledge creation and then it got privatized? And well, 50, 60 years ago, it was expensive to distribute journal articles. I mean, right. it was it was difficult. And yeah. so they had to print and ship them and libraries had to find them and put them on shelves. Yeah. Um, and, and uh, uh, you know, so the, 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 the capacity to distribute information has just become so much cheaper. Um, but because of that, they got the other things they got do got bundled up together. So the peer review and the curation function, the citation index and the citation counting and the credit for tenure and promotion and all that stuff got all attached to the journal article um, and the journal process because mm -hmm. that's what we needed to distribute, you know, science. Yeah. I mean, you see this in every media industry, right? I mean, historically, there was a period where distribution was necessarily just as a technological imperative conflated with other stuff. Mm -hmm. And then we see basically the internet makes possible that um, the actual pipes can be separate in principle from any kind of curatorial function. And, you know, Comcast doesn't like mm -hmm. it. Right. You know, and, you know, it used to be that in order to get television to your home, you needed Comcast. And in part, you were paying for, you know, the, you know, basically the equivalent of the the reimbursement fees uh, that go to, you know, so like Disney gets like three bucks per cable subscriber. Mm -hmm. If you have ESPN, whether or not you watch ESPN, they get like three bucks per subscriber. But, you know, now it's possible that you can just go to your cable company and say, I just want a modem. Mm -hmm. I don't want a cable box and I'll get Netflix, you know, and this is creating big uh, and, you know, incumbents don't like this. And um, and in the case of journals, they're a little bit more effective at fighting it than uh, cable companies. Are. They've been able to hold on to it, um, although they know um, I don't think they think the current system is actually they don't really believe it's sustainable, like it's going to be like this in 10 or 20 years. Yeah. So Elsevier, the other things that Elsevier is developing are um, like the faculty information management thing, that productivity thing you have to fill out that says what you did this year. Um, if you go to the Arizona State University website and try to look up a faculty member now, you'll you'll be on the platform of an Elsevier product. I forget what it's called, um, but they um, they handle like the faculty achievement database and also the faculty profile pages and all that. Um, and that's a service that um, Arizona State pays Elsevier for. I forget the name of that product. Um, and so they'll be doing the sort of you are the product type business model of Facebook uh, 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 down the road where they're they're packaging, you know, metrics to, you know, analytics data, 
um, information for marketing and selling stuff and all that. And they, they're not going to be making their money selling journal articles for that much longer. Mm. Yeah, although they, they're trying to transition to a high profit author fee model. Right. So like uh, my understanding, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that the dispute with the University of California is that um, the University of California wanted them to release open access versions without raising the price. And, you know, they said, we want the paywalled version, but we also want the open access and we don't want to pay twice. And so from the, the librarian's perspective, that would be double dipping. Right. And then from Elsevier's perspective, uh, we were asking them for an additional service without offering to pay more money. But basically, Elsevier thought that they could kind of have their cake and eat right. too, that they could charge author fees and they could charge subscriptions. Right. So the University of California wanted sort of a bulk pay-to-publish deal, is my understanding. Right. So yeah. they were going to pay yeah. for all of their faculty's work to be published in the journals, and they wanted that work to then be available free. Um, yeah. uh, and, and we wanted to read uh, Elsevier journals for stuff that wasn't published by UC people. So, right, you know, right. So let's say Joe published something that was paywalled. So that, uh, you know, that we wanted to have one fee that would cover right. that. And so right now there is this issue where, um, you know, and journals will give you the option and Sage journals give you this option. Now, if you publish an article with them, you can pay a few thousand dollars to have your article be open access. Um, and then so some so they have uh, journals that are called hybrid journals where some of the papers are uh, open access because the authors have paid or because they were required to by the funding agency like the Gates Foundation okay. or um, there, there's some other foundations that require that. Um, uh, and then so some articles are free and some aren't. And there is um, a very strong suspicion that there's a lot of double dipping going on because if some of the articles are free, shouldn't all the subscribers now pay a lower subscription fee? Um, uh, for subscribing to that journal. And so they have, they claim to have formulas that account for this, but it's not very transparent. And of course we're suspicious. Now uh, with the, we talked a few times about like what's popular within ASA and you know, what's not. And unfortunately author fees are not popular within ASA. Like sociologists kind of have a cultural um, aversion to paying author fees. Right. And, you know, I, as a board member of sociological science, I've encountered this and, the, the irony is that sociological science has absurdly low author fees, mm -hmm. like, and they're, they're set at cost, right? There's no uh, profits or anything. And to, to a certain extent, the, you know, not only does the board not get paid, but uh, uh, to a certain extent subsidized by Stanford. Mm -hmm. But, but like Gabriel, a lot of the research that goes on the discipline is unfunded and takes place at institutions where they're not even covering your. This is what you hear. This is what you it, hear, right? You is. hear people say like, yeah, you, you know, uh, you know, that like, uh, now, to me, it's kind of ridiculous that you would rather go through three rounds of R and R, even if you were paying out of pocket. You know, like five six hundred dollars is well worth it. Like if you were rational, right. and and you didn't have and you didn't have liquidity. If you're doing if you're doing forty five a year, and you don't see yourself moving up to a six figure professorship, like you're just trying to get tenure at your forty five a year sort of, you know, uh, lower mm -hmm. status institution. I don't know if it's rational. I really don't. Right. Um, now, there is a sense that the author fee, the author charge model is elitist because it benefits people who can pay. But if you look at the paywall model, if you look at the ASA, I just put this on Twitter the other day, I can retweet it whenever this show airs. Um, uh, 
uh, if you look at who's publishing in the ASA journals, it's overwhelmingly the elite departments. So um, the yeah. the if if we made um, Harvard and Stanford and UNC and you know I'll just mention Maryland because we're in there somewhere and if you made those universities pay to publish. Um, the, a, a, then all you need to do is figure out a waiver system for the small percentage of ASA journal articles that are published from non-elite places and figure out a way to subsidize that aspect of it. Um, you know, and maybe the individual researcher at Harvard doesn't have a grant to pay for that publication of that article, but Harvard could work it out. There's money around. Yeah. To the extent that they care, yes. To the extent right. that that is a priority. But I think sociologists feel like a lot of sociologists, because I talk to sociologists about this stuff all the time, um, and we, you know, of course, we're we're uh, we're on the we're on the, the social justice side of the spectrum in this in our discipline. Um, but on this issue, we're pretty regressive as a group, and it's because um, it's uh, I think that there's a misguided sense that. Where we have a good thing going here, where we're selling these journal articles and we're using it to subsidize this other stuff that ASA does, and for our image and the public and all that, and that somehow this is actually helping the lower status uh, members of our profession um, more than it's hurting them when it's actually their libraries that are getting bankrupted by this system. I mean, yeah. you know, Cal State Fullerton, I like to pick on Cal State Fullerton, which is a great, extremely large not high status research university, um, they have to pay a lot for these subscriptions. And, uh, you know, who are we helping? For context of listeners who aren't um, experts on comparative universities and don't live in California, uh, Fullerton is basically next to Disneyland. Yeah. And the Cal State system is kind of the second tier of the public university system. So Cal State uh, Fullerton is a basically a university in the suburbs of Los Angeles it's giant. that serves a mostly working class constituency. 50,000 students or something. Yeah. 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 Um, so we don't need to, we don't need to subsidize Harvard faculty publishing their articles in ASR at the expense of every, you know, state school around the country. I, I wonder if it's just going to ultimately hasten the demise of the journal system. Like I think about all of the research findings that ended up impacting the field that took place through you know, preprints or like, uh, you know, National Bureau of Economic Research working papers. That's when they get their traction. And I think it could just as easily happen like that. Mm -hmm. uh, blogs, I mean, blogs have taken people down. So, <laughs> you know, I, I, I think I think it's one of those things where if you abuse it too far, it will just use it lose wide use. Guys, I think we have to uh, wrap up. Uh, do, do anybody want some final thoughts? Uh, uh I will. Uh, I'll update you on what happens at the Committee on Publications um, uh, if I haven't uh, if I haven't quit in a huff by then. <laughs> <laughs> All right, that'd be great. Hi, everybody. It's uh, Joe Cohen recording on January twenty first, twenty twenty, with a follow up to our discussion. Principle of fairness. I reached out to the ASA Communications Office asking for uh, some type of response. Uh, I received one uh, from them, and uh, I thought I'd read it here. Uh, from the ASA Communications Office, they write, uh, Dear Professor Cohen, thanks for contacting us. The letter the ASA signed, along with more than 50 other learned societies with similar missions related to advancing science and scientific scholarship, expressed concern about an executive order rumored to be coming out with almost no notice or consultation with the scientific community. The letter asked President Trump to slow down and, quote, engage with a broad array of stakeholders to collaboratively ensure openness and reliability in research and development, unquote. In signing the letter, 
Our primary goal was to encourage discussion by the administration with the scientific community before moving forward precipitously and unilaterally with policy changes that will affect scientific publishing. Given, and as you probably know, that the Trump administration has not been particularly friendly to scientific advancement, an unexpected and hurried executive order related to science policy was met with skepticism. Given that we still do not have full information about the content of the possible executive order, we are focused on ensuring consultation as it is developed so that we have no, so we have no additional comment now. I should also mention that the decision to sign the letter was made following the ESA's policy for responding to time-sensitive public issues with a vote of the president, president-elect, past president, and secretary. Needless to say, these elected leaders take this responsibility very seriously and do their best to reflect the interests of the sociologists who are our members. So there you have it, a statement uh, from the ASA Communications Office. You've been listening to The Annex, a sociology podcast. A special thank you to Philip Cohen from the University of Maryland. We're on the web, sociocast.org annex on Twitter at Socianix and on Facebook the Annex Sociology Podcast music by Lena Orsa on behalf of Gabriel Rossman I'm Joe Cohen thanks for listening <laughs>